Family meeting after 10. Welcome to Family Meeting, a Peaky Blinders podcast. I'm Kelly Anakin. And I'm Tom Schneider. We're back. Yeah. As usual. Well, right. You know, we've been really, we've posted a weekly show like most of this year. Yeah. No, you're right. That has not been the case in the past. Yeah. So good job, us. Yeah. We're awesome. <laughs> yes. Uh, yeah. So we're here to recap uh, Family Meeting is the name of this show. Right. Peaky Blinders. That's what we're here to recap. Season two, episode four. Tom. Episode five. Oh, now I see what happened before. <laughs> yeah. Fun story, everyone. <laughs> I misidentified this episode in the Google Drive where we write these recaps, and Tom tried to explain that to me earlier, and I was like, yeah, meh, whatever, <laughs> but now, yeah. you know, it's like the end of The Sixth Sense. I was like, oh, I was a ghost the whole time. <laughs> you were a confused ghost. Yes, a very confused ghost. Uh, yeah, so we'll be recapping and uh, sharing at the end of the episode some correspondence from our listeners. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that's a little bit of a format change a for us. A little experiment here. Yeah, we are going to experiment with doing that at the end instead of the beginning and see how everyone likes it. Yeah, so if, if you want to hear those le- letters, then stick around till the end. If you don't, then you can just bail. Yeah, you can leave. Yeah. Although you will miss us saying, by order of the Pinky Blinders! Yeah. Although I just said it now, so. <laughs> well, that's this is your freebie. Yeah, but you know what? You weren't you weren't selling it. That was that's true. That I was, was a, and that was a perfunctory. Right, right. That Although, was. I mean, honestly, us saying "grace, <laughs> grace, grace" last week was really popular. Also, if you don't, uh, you should definitely like us on Facebook. Yeah. and follow us on Twitter. We're at Family Meeting PB on Twitter, I, and it's just up yours downstairs on Facebook, right? Because we're lazy. Yeah. Um. But then you'll get, uh, you know, you'll get news. You'll get news, updates, all kinds of stuff, uh, including the very exciting slash disturbing news, <laughs> which we received this week. Yeah. Which is that Annabelle Wallace, who plays Grace, uh, is dating Chris Martin, of all people. Yes. And I Chris mean, Martin, of the Coldplay Martins. Granton. 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 <laughs> Temple Grandin. Uh, <laughs> Granted, when I think of Chris Martin, basically all I think of is that episode of Extras where he's <laughs> on When the Whistle Blows. Yeah. And, uh, you know, Ricky Gervais's character is just like, oh, it's only Chris Martin from Coldplay. <laughs> like, that's how I feel every time. And, like, he seems, you know, he seems like he's got a good sense of humor and yeah, stuff. Yeah, sure. I mean, you'd have to to be married to Gwyneth Paltrow <laughs> when she entered her smug, self-satisfied phase. Yeah. Uh, anyway... Annabelle Wallace is dating him, and I don't, I get, guys, I just don't, I follow Annabelle Wallace on Twitter. Yeah. And she's awful. <laughs> like, she does not have a good Twitter presence. Well, some people don't. And it's, well, it's just, she's trying too hard. Oh. And I just feel like her dating Chris Martin is her trying too hard. I'm like, he's not gonna marry you. Yeah. And like, you're never gonna happen, Annabelle Wallace. Yeah. Like, you know, not to be disrespectful of British actors because obviously we're huge, huge fans right. of British television and movies. Yeah. But it's like there's two kinds of British actors. There's the type that stay in Britain mm-hmm. and there's the type that immediately move to America. Yeah. And just Annabelle Wallace doesn't strike me as the type who can make it in America. Agreed. I mean, even most of the cast of Downton Abbey can't do that. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Uh, they've been trying. Yeah. And I have to say also, while we're on that subject, mm-hmm. we've been real dicks about Dan Stevens. We have. And we reviewed his IMDb 
IMDb the other day mm-hmm. and it turns out he's doing really well. <laughs> yeah. We <laughs> have been sitting around shitting on him being like, Oh, you're not doing anything. He's been in a lot of movies, guys. Yeah, he's, he's, he's doing really well. He's, he's getting paid. Um, so you know what? It was the right choice, Dan Stevens. I suppose. It was the right choice for Dan Stevens. Yeah, yeah. Like, you would do it. Oh, I suppose that's probably true. Yeah, you true. definitely would. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, let's see. Any other mea culpas we need to get off of our chests? Apologizing to Sam Neill last week just yeah, really, really opened the floodgates. <laughs> that's right. Um, oh, we thought we had mentioned this. Yeah. We thought we had discussed this, but the number of tweets and emails we're getting about this lead us to believe that we may not have. Right. So we're getting a lot of emails informing us that Charlotte Riley, who plays the attractive bitch mm-hmm. on Peaky Blinders, is in fact Tom Hardy's real life wife or partner. I don't know if they're actually married. Right. But but who cares? We, you know, we're in the Bay Area. Um, we don't care. Yeah, it really doesn't matter. We don't <laughs> care what gender they are. They don't need no piece of paper from the uh, city hall, c- town council the hall. registrar? Yeah. I don't know. Um, yeah, so we've known that, actually. We've mm-hmm. known it since we watched the show the first time and just... I think that was long enough ago that we maybe didn't mention it. But yeah, Yeah. so Charlotte Riley and Tom Hardy are together in real life. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's got to be an interesting partnership. Yeah. I feel like being with Tom Hardy would be difficult. Yeah. I mean, I can see that. And I'm basing that mainly on his performance in this show. Right. But I mean, to me, she's got... Charlotte Riley has got kind of a almost a Helena Bottom Carter thing going on to where Mm -hmm. I feel like she could ride with that pretty easily. Like, in what sense? Just, just, I don't know. Oh, what like, th- in the sense that Helena Bonham Carter dealt with Tim Burton for so right, long? Okay. Right, yeah. I was like, and I she, mean, she's got she, big eyes, but. Yeah, but, but, and also a sense of being able to be comfortable around some crazy. Mm-hmm. I mean, that is almost her entire character in this show. Yeah, as that's well. true. No, and she also was in that Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell. Right. Norrell. Right. You say Norrell, <laughs> I say Norrell. Yeah. Let's call the whole thing stupid. Kelly will, yes. I will. I didn't like that book. No. Tom really liked the TV show, though. Yeah, so. I like the, I, I like the TV show much better than the book, in mm-hmm. fact. So, yeah. Uh, okay. Anything else we need to apologize slash explicate? I think we're good. I think good. we're good. Well, we might as well have read a letter <laughs> for as long as all that took. Well, anyway. Well, hopefully you found that intriguing. <laughs> yeah. Everyone. <laughs> uh, okay. So, Peaky Blinders. Season two, episode five. We're almost done. Yeah. Only one more this episode to go. This is such a fast paced show. Yeah. And I really appreciate that Absolutely. about it. You know? Yeah. And boy, I'll tell you, the, the short recap of the first six minutes of this episode is everything happens. This was so hard to like get down on, you know, digital paper. Right. Cause right. I'm, I just, you know, when we do this, I'm typing Tom's controlling the start and stop. And we yeah. often have to go back mm-hmm. so that we can get things down. But this was like, hang on. Hang on. Okay. Okay. Hang on. Hang yeah. on. It was just, it was, it was, it was difficult. Nuts. Yeah. 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 So I'll let you say it out loud since I had <laughs> to be the one to type it. Yeah. So Red Right Hand kicks it us off as we see Solomon's guiding a goat through his bakery, mm-hmm. like you do. Uh, we see a man at a fancy restaurant serving Sabini and pals. Uh, and Sabini's lieutenant checks his watch. We then cut to Sam Neill checking his watch. Uh, to the sound of a woman making, you know, sex noises. And he is banging Mrs. Whore. Oh, Mrs. Whore. Yeah. She's playing the role she was born to play. This is only mildly unexpected. <laughs> yeah. It's like, okay, this is, this is gonna happen. Yeah. You know, he claimed to just be verifying her identity, but. 
that's a man with some bizarre sexual needs and like expressions. Yeah. Like this is why repression doesn't work, people. Yeah. He's you know, a, uh, <laughs> for every God fearing citizen you create, there's at least 16 Sam Neils out there. Yeah. Just gross. Ruining and, somebody's life. Yeah. Yeah. When taking a lot of it out on Killian Murphy for no reason. Yeah. Well, and Mrs. Horror for that matter. So cut back to Solomon's Bakery where people are uh, laying a table as the goat kind of wanders around. Arthur and Billy Kitchen walk through the warehouse with Arthur who uh, very conspicuously sniffs at, you know, I guess the goat smell. Goats have a very strong smell. I won't even eat goat cheese because it tastes to me like licking a goat. Okay. Good My friend had goats growing up, so ah, I, I know from goats. <laughs> My brother's friend had goats, but I didn't see them that often. So. Uh, I once saw a photo in a Dayton newspaper about a goat that jumped on a trampoline with a boy. <laughs> That's great. It was a great photo. My friend had it on her fridge. <laughs> we couldn't get enough of that goat. Yes. This goat, sadly, less joyful, as we shall well, see. Well, this goat's got a different path. <laughs> Indeed. Mrs. Hoare asks Sam Neill if he's working that night, but he says, not so much work as pleasure. Others are doing my work for me. Like, there's nothing he can say that doesn't make him sound like a smug asshole. <laughs> yeah. No, and she um, she says something to him, doesn't she, about how he's he's not very classy or something. Yeah. And I'm like, you should have seen the last girl. Yeah. Like, you're getting off easy, Mrs. Hoare. <laughs> Solomon's enthusiastically greets Arthur, who says, Shalom. Then Sabini drops a plate onto the floor for luck, I guess. You know, sucks to your ass, smart restaurant. <laughs> uh, and his, men's are get- his men are getting their guns ready. Then we cut to Sam Neill staring at himself in a mirror. Cut to Sam Neill in a car driven by Moss, who is not happy and uh, tries to remind Sam Neill that he, Moss, is running this operation. Sam Neill is eating a Mrs. Horse sandwich. He is. I made Tom go back and rewatch it so I could verify, <laughs> but he's definitely eating one of the sandwiches. So I guess, you know, yeah. he's he's taking uh, whatever his pleasure is mm-hmm. of both Mrs. Horror and her sandwiches. That's right. Moss is like, he never brings me a sandwich. You, you don't want these horse sandwiches. <laughs> oh, well, I suppose not. These sandwiches were forged in Sodom itself. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know you could forge a sandwich. Yeah, but apparently uh, in Belfast. Look, the spirit of Sam Neill has spoken. <laughs> well, in, in Beham, you can forge anything. Oh, that's a good point. Yeah. Uh, so we cut to Paul and H&M having their supper. Paul prays and says amen, and then Michael doesn't, and she tries to get him to. Doesn't she know that all 18-year-olds refuse to pray out loud, like, just as a matter of policy? Like, they might actually be, like, really religious and faithful, mm-hmm. but they just, wa- like, they're like, I'm not going to say amen because you told me to. That's right. You're not God. <laughs> Indeed. Yeah. I don't even care if you are my real mom. God doesn't even, if I just said it because you made me, God wouldn't even like that. Yeah. God's not into that, Mom. <laughs> uh, back at the bakery, Solomon's is offering a uh, creative explanation of the Passover. Uh, this is honestly one of the f- best retellings of the Passover I've ever heard. Uh-huh. Like, I enjoyed this so, so much. Yeah. I just, I, it's a very different portrait of Judaism than I've ever seen on screen anywhere. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And like, I know that there's, you know, a Jewish mafia. Right. Or, you know, was. There was, certainly. Um, you know, if there is currently, we'd love to talk to you. <laughs> we have numerous questions. <laughs> um, but, you know, 
I think they're really, they're really free here because, you know, these were the last years that, you know, Jewish people from everywhere didn't have the specter of World War II hanging over them. Mm -hmm. And it seemed like things were really like going fine. Yeah. You know, at least, you know, I don't know to what extent, you know, anti-Semitism was happening. I mean, it was obviously happening. Right. Well, but I mean, it's but just, also it depends where you were. I think, you know, less so in England than in, you know. Yeah. I mean, but I mean, even what we saw in Downton Abbey, there's still oh, very yeah, much. For sure. Sure. Um, yeah. But I mean, it's just, it's a very powerful portrait. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I like that. Yeah. You know, it's, it's like, you know, a very like Joshuaian. You say Joshuaian? I, I just always think of like just, Joshua yeah, being yeah, such yeah. a badass in right, the Old right. Testament. Mm-hmm. And like that's not been the case in a lot of media portrayals. Because right. there's always sort of this whiff of victimization. Mm-hmm. But I mean, here's a guy who totally loves and owns and believes in his faith and his heritage. Mm-hmm. And like I'm not, you know, I'm not sitting here saying, you know, hey, you know, Jewish people go be a mafia person. Right. But it's like. It's just a very, it's a very virile portrayal as mm-hmm, well. Mm-hmm. And I just, I really like it a lot. Yeah. It's very different. Mm-hmm. I agree. Anyway, as Solomons is talking, uh, some guys are closing a bunch of doors to the room and Billy whispers to Arthur that this isn't right. And Solomon says that Billy is free to leave and go to the bathroom or whatever. Uh, but Arthur says that he's all right. He calls it the little boy's room. <laughs> right. Everything about Tom Hardy in this show, like <laughs> Killian's performance is great, mm-hmm. but like Tom Hardy's is just in a different league. I mean, he's well, it's in a, a different he's in, like scenery chewing mode. Yeah, and it's just a, it's a different character. Yeah, like completely, yeah. which is great. Yeah, because Sabini, I guess all of the mob bosses have been really distinct characters. Yeah, that's true. And if you look at, we just saw uh, some like at Hot last night mm-hmm. at the beautiful Paramount Theater in Oakland, California. Yes, yes. Should you ever come visit? Uh, and all of the mafia bosses in that movie are so interchangeable. Yeah. Like, yeah. they kind of look different, but they're all basically the same person. Right, right. But here, it just, you know, these guys all have different motivations, mm-hmm. whether we deal with it or not. Right, right. But it's just, you know, they're all distinct characters. Or at least Noah Taylor is when he's in a scene with somebody who can act. Yes. Um, there's more Passover explanation over shots of Paul and Michael eating. Uh, their own little Seder dinner, I suppose. And then we see Mario, who is the guy that got stabbed in the face with the bottle. So he's not dead. That's right. Uh, but looking worse for the wear. As you would imagine. Yeah, he looks yeah. real bad. He looks like he got stabbed in the face with a bottle uh-huh. of punch. So uh, he's pouring wine for Sabini's men. And we also see Sam Neill's men advancing on Paul's house. Solomon says that in order for the Jews to be per- permitted to kill a king in ancient Egypt, they had to perform the Korban Pesach, the ritual killing of a goat. And he says that the goat must be named after the enemy. And he's like, you want to know what we named this goat, Arthur? And Arthur is perfectly chill and happy. He's like, yeah, what? And uh, Solomon says, Tommy Shelby. (laughs) The goat's throat gets slit. Uh, Somebody shoots Billy. And everybody else restrains Arthur, who is trying to jump at Solomon. Yeah, he's trying to go in berserker mode. Yeah, but he is heavily outnumbered. We see Sabini and his men strolling into the Eden Club, and he fires a gun and tells the staff, You're all fired! <laughs> uh, Sam Neal's men burst into Polly's house. Solomon's is intoning to Arthur, who is being choked, and the evil Egyptian scum was finally cleansed with the blood of the Passover goat, which is great. Yeah. Like, well, because, you know, it's a reference to Arthur's gypsiness as exactly. well. Exactly. And uh, Solomon's dabs... 
goat's blood on Arthur's face and then kisses both cheeks, telling him that's from Sabini. Yeah. Uh, they then knock Arthur out and Sabini tells a blinder in the Eden Club to tell his gypsy king that anyone who comes south will go back north in many little pieces. Yeah. So uh, in case you haven't figured this out, <laughs> Sabini and Solomons are officially making their move. Yeah. Uh, and uh, really in dramatic fashion. Yeah. And it's like, we're not even done. I can't help but think that their sense of the theatrical is going to take them down in the long run. Yeah. What's funny about this is we do not remember what happens in the next episode, like, at all. I remember some of it. Yeah. I remember some of it, but it doesn't have to do with this plot line. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, we we really don't know how this is going to No, it's really, it's great. How are they going to get out of this bucket of syrup? (laughs) Uh, Some guys come to the room where Solomons has attacked Arthur, and he says that Arthur came in like an animal and shot Billy Kitchen. He came in like a wrecking ball. (laughs) I just closed my eyes and killed this goat. (laughs) He slit his goat's throat with his bare fists. (laughs) He's a piggy blinder. They keep razor blades in between their fingers. That's not a bad Tom Hardy. That wasn't terrible, no. Thanks. Yeah. Uh, So, yeah. uh, It's the cops that have come in, and he's telling them that Arthur shot Billy Kitchens, and the cops drag Arthur out of there. The police take H&M out of Paul's house as she screams that they can't take her son away. Not again. Sam Neill says to Brangham, the boy, <laughs> he's being arrested for taking part in a fight uh, and, you know, the, you know, burning down of the, uh, the, the Marquis. The, the Marquis, yeah. Paul attempts to get to H&M and tells him not to say anything because Killian will get him out. Sam Neill then creepily presses up against Paul from behind in a way that makes my entire vagina recoil. Yeah. And says, you should know that as of this night... Thomas Shelby has finished. Uh, this is, I mean, this is all bad. Like, yeah. this is like every asset that they have being neutralized. Yeah. And that's no good. Yeah. So, yeah, after all of this, cut to attractive bitches stables. Where nothing's going wrong. Yep. Everybody's happy. Uh, so, attractive bitch is uh, dressed down for this occasion. She introduces Killian to Mickey. She says that Mickey's the best horseman in England, but Killian says that he likes to waste money, uh, specifically because he's spending two pounds a month on worming powder. Uh, Mickey's like, oh, you want him to have worms? And he says, worms come from the e- eggs in the water. You put goldfish in the water. They eat up all the eggs. No worms. Mickey is quite skeptical. He asks if it's a gypsy thing, but Killian says that it's an accounting thing. He's so great. <laughs> Mickey says that if an attractive bitch wants to, she can just dispense with the vet altogether. He is, you know, very cranky, as you would understand. Oh, yeah. Nobody likes somebody coming in and telling them, you know, that they're better at their job yeah. than you are. Yeah. Uh, so he storms off. An attractive bitch asks if Killian's ever considered a career in diplomacy. Uh, and then she's like, goldfish, seriously? And Killian says, yep, you people have a lot to learn. It's awesome. <laughs> yes. It's just, it's very rare that you see... You know, somebody who's sort of like, uh, I guess it's not that. Anyway, I just like seeing him being this person that nobody respects Mm -hmm. on any level, but just, you know, acting like they already should. You know what I mean? Uh Uh-huh. He gets away with a lot by faking it till he makes it, you know? (laughs) Yeah, no, you're right. 
Killian and AB are walking out front and she stops to kiss him. She says they asked if she wants a fire in the guest bedroom and she told them no, just one fire that night. He comments, bold and fearless, eh? She says she's not exactly fearless. They go into her parlor and Killian asks, drink? Why not? She says. Yeah, she's like, well, I suppose I'm unmarriageable now, so I might as well get hammered. (laughs) He pours while she takes off her boots and a maid comes in and says there's a telephone call for Mr. Shelby. Oh. Yeah. So cut to Sam Neal's in uh, his standard church. Our Lady of Perpetual Office Hours. <laughs> That's right. Killian storms in. Like, is is Sam Neal always being in this empty church? Is this like a metaphor for the collapse of organized religion in interwar England? That's my theory. That's a fair point. There should be more people in that church. <laughs> yeah. People used to just hang out in them all the time. They did. So Killian comes in yelling that they had a deal, uh, but Sam Neal points out that the Home Secretary has had his panties in a bunch about a laundry list of moral issues, including gambling. I think you mean gambling. (laughs) That's right. Killian says that he was guaranteed protection, but Sam Neal says that was Churchill's promise, and the Home Secretary outranks him. I thought Churchill was the Home Secretary. I thought that as well, but was wrong. Um, And as far as I can tell, what he was at this point was... Secretary for the Colonies. Boo. Right. Which would make sense in terms of he would have had responsibility for Ireland. So that's how he got involved with Sam Neill at that point. Mm-hmm. But but wasn't he the Home Secretary before? I, maybe not. I don't know. I would have sworn they said that, but maybe not. Yeah. I, I guess maybe he just mentioned the Home Secretary as a superior and we were confused. I don't know. Um, and I find the timeline surprisingly difficult to pin down of his various uh, offices between World War One and World War Two. Anyway, uh, Sam Neill says that it's not his fault that our Arthur went on some sort of blood orgy rampage during dinner. Uh, Killian screams not to sit in his church and lie to him. But Sam Neill says that Killian has to keep his emotions in check or their meeting is over. Killian stares at him and then backs away a bit. Sam Neill says that's better. And says that they need to review the new situation. He says he has Arthur in a cell for the murder of Billy Kitchen. And that H&M has admitted to helping Arthur burn down the Marquis. Which he didn't. Right. But I think uh, Sam Neill pretty clearly implies that he was beaten into admitting it. Yeah. Yeah. Killian asks what Sam Neill wants, but Sam Neill plays dumb. He says that he was losing sleep over the fact that Killian doesn't fear death, so he needed to have the power of life and death over Killian's family to make sure that Killian obeys him on the day of the assassination. Oh, and by the way, he also knows Ada's address and always has and can kill her at any time. He says that as his father used to say, if you want your dog to obey you, then every once in a while you've got to show him the stick. You gotta, you know, canes up. (laughs) <laughs> to Sam Neill here. I mean, he really managed to orchestrate quite the... Uh... He did. Although, to what extent he was involved or even knew about the reconciliation between Alfie Solomons and Sabini. That's true. I mean, I look, I think it's coincidental, but he's still smart enough to ride the whole thing. Yeah, know? yeah. It's in his better interest for Killian to think that he had a hand in everything. Absolutely, yeah. Back in Tommy's office, the phone rings and Lizzie is telling Killian they've got Arthur in solitary confinement and H&M's in the remand wing and Killian says he already knows and to get out and shut the door. He answers the phone and it's fucking Grace. Jesus. I, what a bitch. Yeah. (laughs) Oh my God. Anyway, 
uh, Killian just doesn't say anything. And Grace literally says, Tommy, can you hear me? And I died. Yeah. She says, I've taken up with this guitar player. He's very talented. His name's Pete Townshend. I think he's going to be a big deal. Uh, she thinks that he called and she hasn't slept. He says that it's not a good time, but hey, sure. Yeah, they can meet. Boo. Do not like. You've got the attractive bitch. Yeah. Killian, why don't you just be like, ah, uh, wrong number and hang up? Like, come on. I mean, like, I get it. Like, I get it to an extent. Yeah. You know, we all want a second crack at the one who got away. Yeah, yeah. But, like, she sucks, man. She does. She sucks really hard. She does. She's probably going to make you listen to her sing anyway. Nah. I was thinking about this last week between episodes. Why was she so, you know confounded set on singing in the first place because that clearly had nothing to do with the mission <laughs> that's true all she had to do was be a barmaid yeah that didn't have to be a part of anything no she just she's like i've always fancied singing <laughs> i've always wanted to do it yeah she had this like american idol-esque <laughs> thing going on behind her oh my god anyway god she did not have to sing right so what does Chris Martin think about her singing? Like, right? how does that work? I don't know. Is he like, oh, that sounds great. Well, I don't even think he's that great. But I mean, well, you know, everyone begs to differ. So. Yeah, that's true. But I, I mean, know, he's also... He's got a good falsetto. Yeah, I, I mean, and he's, and he's like a, you know, professional working musician. Oh, yeah. One of the biggest in the entire world. Right. So anyway. She said, okay, Chris, <laughs> now that we're dating... <laughs> I'd really like to do guest vocals on the next Coldplay album. <laughs> My lawyer says you have to let me. <laughs> no, he'd have to. He'd have to like quit the band and start a Wings esque side project. <sighs> Woof. Yeah. Divorce on the run. <laughs> I don't miss you, Gwyneth. <laughs> So Killian walks into a family meeting uh, at the betting parlor, and Mumper explains the Camden Down coppers have arrested 10 of their men, and the rest are on the run. Paul starts yelling about H&M. Men on the run! <laughs> yes, but Killian yells, business first. So Polly shuts up for a second. Maybe I'm amazed at the way you do business all the time. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe I'm afraid of the cops that hate us. I did not expect the strong wings theme to this episode. Well, you said wings. I did. And I flew with it. Yeah. Now <laughs> <if> we, <laughs> did you see what I I said flew with No, you did. Now if we can just work in some references to the Thomas Hayden Church sitcom. Oh man, I didn't watch enough of that sitcom to do it. No, all I remember is Tony Shalhoub like existing in it. I remember uh what's his name from Oh uh, yeah. Reefer Madness. Uh Steven, Steven Weber. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. That congrats Steven Weber. <laughs> in my mind, top of mind reference, you being in Reefer Madness. Yeah. So sadly, that's not enough people's top of mind, I would no. think, but that was said in the interwar period. <laughs> oh, that's true. It's it, it, I mean, it's in yeah, the 30s. Yeah, but, yeah. 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 <laughs> it's a top of mind reference to a lot of very hazy minds. What? <laughs> 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 uh, fine movie. So Mumper continues that the cops have taken all their whiskey and impounded their warehouses. Uh, they've raided the Eden Club and all their pubs and returned control to Solomon's and Sabini. Moreover, the Black Country Boys think that it was our, 
that it was Arthur that killed Billy. So there's no more free passage for their boats through well, that territory. Uh, I guess Charlie's going to be happy. <laughs> no, he's never going to be happy. That's true. He's got to be a Capricorn. Yeah. <laughs> Paul interrupts to say that she doesn't care about Whiskey or Billy Kitchen. She just wants her son out of prison immediately. And everybody's like, oh, well, now that you've yelled, this problem will be solved. Thanks, Polly. See, again, this is why I can't be Team Polly. Yeah. Like, I just can't be. Like, she just... I understand her concern, but it's like there's a better way to negotiate. Mm -hmm. Like, Killian never has any emotions. Yeah. Like, I'm not saying that's the best way to be, but I'm saying it does get results. Yeah. it's While it's handy in negotiating, you know, it it does seem like, you know, at some point could erupt and kill him and all he loves. Oh, sure. In the meantime. They all assume that. Like, they're criminals. Yeah. Yeah. Good point. Esme says that she spoke to Johnny Dogs, and Paul says that the meeting should be family only. Boo! Esme is family! She is! That's the whole point! God, I mean, she's around more than you off gallivanting with your weird son. Yeah. Yeah, she's more useful than Arthur ever was, for that matter. I agree! Like, Esme has a very good head for strategy, Mm -hmm. and I, for one, am sick of seeing her light get hid under a bushel. Yeah. Although... She does need to put all of her wardrobe in a bushel, take that light, and set it aflame. <laughs> That's my wish for Series 3. More Esme, and uh, Esme gets a makeover. Yeah. Get the attractive bitch to do it. She'd love it. Yeah, that, that's true. She would. She'd... I've always wanted to give a makeover to a gypsy girl. <laughs> she reminds me Papa kind of... Papa would never let me. She kind of reminds me of Estella in the South Park... Uh, great expectations I see it I mean she's a little bit more compassionate Mm -hmm. (laughs) Esme says that the leads can give them men but Paul blows her top again and says that it's men fighting like cockerels that got them into this mess in the first place which is true but you're immediately putting yourself in a very weak position to negotiate right and it's also men fighting like cockerels that got you all the money you've ever had that's also true so Oh, you know, she had that still. (laughs) Well, how'd that work out? Not great. No. Uh, She tells Killian that if Michael ever makes it out of prison, she's taking him away from this family. Killian's like, fucking great. (laughs) I never wanted him here in the first place. Yeah. It was, I only introduced him to you so you'd shut the fuck up occasionally. Well, it didn't work. No, it didn't. And then Polly uh, takes Finn out of the meeting. So, yeah. Oh, that was the other thing that we didn't say. Mm. We got an email from uh, listener Courtney. Yeah. Uh, on the episode that Alice and Mick guested, we were talking about how much Finn and uh, John look alike. Right. And it turns out the actors are brothers in real life. So yeah. thank you, listener Courtney, for pointing that out. Yes. Esme wants to know if she should go speak to Queen Mary Lee of the Black Patch. Which I is, want her to have her own spinoff, honestly. I, yeah. Like, again, we've never had a show that was just straight about Romney or Travelers. Mm-hmm. And I think that is stupid. Like, if we can yeah. have Duck Dynasty, <laughs> I think we should be able to have that. I agree. Because, again, the riches was so close to being that. Yeah. But instead, they were like, what if they were millionaires? And I don't care about millionaires. Right. I've never met one. And if I did, I'd punch him in the face. Yeah. That's not true. I have met a millionaire. Oh, okay. But he's my boss. Yeah. So I'm not going to punch him in the face. No. There's plenty of millionaires around the Bay Area, and everybody hates all of them. Yeah. Yeah. You know, anyway, but it's just like, uh, I want to see what that's like Mm -hmm. from, you know, that point of view. Yeah. 
So get your shit together, Hollywood. And, you know, Hollywood's UK annex. <laughs> Maybe there's a documentary I can watch. Yeah, I don't know. I've, there was a reality show about gypsy weddings, but I don't think that's what you're looking no, for. No, it's not. I'm looking yeah. for, like, the day-to-day. I mean, if there's a wedding in there, I'm not going to... I love a there's, good wedding. There's a book that I read once called Bury Me Standing, I think. That mm-hmm. was just a, you know, general history. Okay, well, I'll read that. Yeah. I'll read that and we'll go from there. But listeners, if you have any suggestions yeah. uh, of any media uh, about Romani gypsy travelers, uh, we'd love to get your suggestions and we'll share those with everybody. Yeah. Esme tells Mumper to go bring up the car, and uh, yeah, so it's clear who's wearing the pants in that relationship. Esme tells Killian to just imagine... Yeah, so she's really telling Mumper to get him out of the room so she can say this to Killian one-on-one, and says that he should just imagine riding away. His gypsy half is the stronger. I fundamentally disagree with her. Well, right. I mean, I think there's a sense in which it's in her interest to keep him with one leg in the gypsy world, Mm -hmm. but if you look at all of the Shelby brothers, they've done everything they can to distance themselves from their gypsy roots. Yeah. You know, and I think that goes back to being angry at their father, Mm -hmm. who was, you know, the gypsy half of their relationship right well, i think that's paul's brother okay yeah okay then i guess so yeah we'd have to you know yeah their mom was just a diddy coy whore right she didn't necessarily have to be diddy coy herself yeah okay we know they're half gypsy right and yeah. i've always you know assumed no that you that may was be right the case. yeah yeah in any case um it's just i just as me as so great and she, just the way she's like no and and i I don't feel that bad because it had been a while since I saw it, but I thought she was pretty much done Mm -hmm. after her outburst in the meeting in the second or third episode. But she had such a great uh, interaction with attractive bitch. Mm -hmm. This is fantastic. It is fantastic. I mean, she's so good. And I know, I think they've already started shooting. I think they have. It's not like what we say matters, (laughs) but I really hope we get more Esme. And I I hope that that's on the table. Agreed. Uh, but she tells him about France and how in France they're still allowed to get lost. Um, and he tells Esme that he and Mumper have already been to France and to get her coat and go with her husband. And also that if she ever speaks to him again about getting lost, he'll cut her from this family. Esme looks around her and says, what family? And that's the fucking baller thing about Esme. She never feels intimidated or no. like, that she well, doesn't look, have, yeah. Here's what she knows. Esme is the envoy from the Lee family. Yeah. And the Lee family doesn't give a fuck. Yeah. They will kill all of them in the night. And then... And who cares? And then skip off to France. Yeah. They don't give a shit. They don't give a shit about Birmingham or anywhere. Yeah. You know? They can be home anywhere. That's the whole point of their life. So she has no fear. You know, she went a bit wild, right? Yeah. Maybe this was how she went wild. She (laughs) was talking back to the gypsy elders. Mm -hmm. But again, I mean, the gypsies don't disrespect women in the way that the Shelbys do. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah. Whether you look at it in terms of them, you know, Tommy paying lip service to women's rights, Mm -hmm. but the way they treat Paul and the way they've coddled Ada are like two sides of the same coin. Yeah. Well, you know, it's Queen Mary Lee. Mm-hmm. The Shelbys would never have had a woman in charge if it wasn't for World War One. Exactly. Yeah. I just love that gypsies have a queen. Yeah. That's so cool. Mm-hmm. Cut to the exterior of a prison where Paul is waiting. Uh, we cut inside and Sam Neill says to come in. He's washing his hands when Paul comes in. She says she's there to see her son. 
Sam Neill says he's just been conducting an interrogation, which is hard on the hands. And I'm like, shut up. Yeah. Paul says again that she's there to see her son. Sam Neill deflects by asking if he needs a shave. And it's weird. Yeah. He says that H&M is having a hard time, so he thought that he and Paul should do whatever they can to get H&M freed. Sam Neill has a release form that just needs his signature. She asks him to sign, but he wants more deference. Yeah. He keeps coaching her exactly how she should say what he wants her to say. Yeah. Like, hey, dude, first rule of acting, don't give line readings. (laughs) She offers him information about the Shelby's dealings, but he suggests that he knows more about Killian's business than she does, which is probably true. Yeah. He then gets all lascivious and Paul takes his meaning as he peels her coat off her. Yeah. And he says he's like a magpie that sees silver lying in the mud when it comes to Polly. Yeah. I just imagine him talking to Moss before this scene and being like, no, I think I'd like to wallow in my own crapulence. Paul pulls away and picks up the form and tells him to sign the form and he makes her say, please, sir. But he says he'll sign the form when he's finished with her. Yeah. He says that she, that he needs her to cry while he fucks her and he suggests that she should have pleaded with him more. And she looks up at the ceiling and just, it's horrible that it's like I know this look, mm-hmm. like, and I know this face mm-hmm. and like every woman has had to make this face, mm-hmm. probably not in these specific circumstances yeah. but when you're just like, okay. We're just going to get through this. Yeah. Uh, he calls her a gypsy Fenian slut. And she asks if he wants it on the floor or on the desk, Mr. Campbell. He slaps her and tells her to cry. She doesn't cry and he tries to kick her out. But then she realizes she might be losing her opportunity here. Yeah. So she objects and undoes his belt and gives him a hand job. And then she is crying. Uh, then he grabs her and throws her on the table. She says, we had an agreement, right? And he says, yes. Yeah. Uh, that's a very hard scene to watch. Yeah. And we didn't go into great detail for yeah. that reason. Uh, it's made even harder to watch by the next scene. Yeah. Because uh, we cut to uh, Paul taking a bath and crying. Ada comes in and uh, asks where she was. Paul says that she went to the Spotted Pig and had one or two glasses of rum, uh, eventually admitting that it was perhaps more like six glasses of rum. And there's no indication that she didn't actually go do that. Right. I would go have six glasses of rum after what just happened. I think she has absolutely every right and uh, reason to do so, yeah. And I also think she could have six glasses of rum anytime she feels like it. Yeah, we're in favor of six glasses of rum. Yeah. That's true. Keeps the doctor away. (laughs) sadly for a bit (laughs) (laughs) just because you can't get there (laughs) right paul asks where the baby is and ada says sleeping is he like what happened did she sell this baby we think she sold that baby i think she sold carl yeah i think baby you know comrade baby (sighs) i don't know like you better show me comrade baby in episode six steve knight yeah here, here. I also want to say all these apologies are coming back to me. <laughs> uh, it might be the director who only has six CDs. Uh, Possibly. Cole McCarthy, I think is his name. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know. I don't know what the, the synergy is between the showrunner and... The creative and, process yeah. there, yeah. So it could be that Steve Knight has uh, diverse and varied you know, <laughs> taste in music, and it's it's uh, Colm, Colm McCarthy. Right. Colm is a hard word to say. Yeah. Colm. Calm. 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 <laughs> so you can only say calm if you say it like Sam Neill. Yes. Calm. 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 
Yeah, apparently uh, the maid got bored into going to bed, uh, and she says that James will take Arthur's case for free, so they don't need Killian. I, like, I don't know what James's like, deal is. Right. Even if he is an attorney, like, I suspect his lawyering isn't as effective as Killian's, you know... Kiss, kiss, bang, bang. Right. It's like, well, uh, this known criminal with several government witnesses against him on the one hand. On the other hand, this gay lawyer. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds like, you know, like an NBC drama <laughs> that gets canceled after like six episodes. <laughs> right. Attorney at gay? <laughs> It's actually Will and Grace without Grace. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> Attorney in law. I don't know. We'll uh, we'll fix it in post. <laughs> Still spitballing. So she assures Paul that uh, they'll get H&M free as well. Uh, and Paul, who looks an absolute mess, as you would think. She looks really bad. As she says that Michael is going to get out in the morning. She tells Ada that if Comrade Baby wants anything of the night to ring the bell for the maid, she says the maid is paid to work 24 hours, but they get lazy and take advantage if you're nice. Which is clearly, like, her projecting, but Mm. also attempting to, like, recreate the cycle of abuse. So the answer is, listeners, don't abuse people. Hear, hear. Uh, It always ends bad. Yeah. Ada clearly has an idea that something bad has happened to Paul, but uh, she heads out as Laura Marling's What He Wrote. New album alert! Yeah, kicks in. Uh, and Paul continues taking her post-traumatic bat. And again, Helen McCrory, mm-hmm. like, Paul is a really tough character to play mm-hmm. because she isn't always likable. She very rarely gets a win, yeah. you know? Yeah. But that was just some of the best work I've seen on this show. Yeah. And it just, you know, kudos, Helen mm-hmm. Corey. I hope mm-hmm. uh, it's raining baftas for you. <laughs> we cut to Paul outside the prison, and the door opens. H&M emerges, beaten pretty badly around the face. Yeah. He lights a cigarette as Paul looks on, so I guess uh, he got used to smoking pretty quickly. <laughs> he walks up to Paul, who says he needs to put cream on his cuts, and he says that the screws told him why he'd been freed and what Polly did. The screws thought it was funny. He says, maybe it is, and walks away, which is lame, H&M. It is. Like, that's not okay. It's not okay. I mean, what I would say, you know, on his behalf is is that he was suddenly arrested and put in jail and beat up and interrogated and all this sort of thing. So he's not, you know, I I would say his responsibility is somewhat diminished for his poor decision making here. I know. I'm just saying he should be more mad at Sam Neill than he should be at his mom. Well, he should be. But I mean, you know, Sam Or, you know, being mad at Killian for like losing control of his shit. Yeah. But none of them are there at the moment. That's true. We cut to Killian at uh, Charlie's barn. Curly is there shoveling manure, uh, and Curly's mind then gets blown as Killian picks up a pitchfork and starts shoveling as well. Curly asks why he's doing that. Killian says, to remind myself of what I'd be if I wasn't who I am. Curly's like a very mediocre shit shoveler. Look, man, I feel like that every time I walk into a mall, honestly. Uh, yeah, yeah. Like, well, we went to a mall the other day. Yeah. And mm-hmm. I was like looking at the employees at California Pizza Kitchen and I was like, you know, I'm unsatisfied sometimes. Yeah. But like, I don't work at the mall anymore. No. And I'm not saying that yeah, out not of to any be, disrespect yeah, to anybody sure. who works in a mall. It's noble work. Yeah. I really truly believe that. But it's just like, sometimes you got to remember where you came from, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. Like if I could just go pick up a retail shift somewhere like once a month, I would totally do that. Yeah. 
So if anybody in the Bay Area uh, is open to that, let me know. <laughs> Charlie comes up and asks what Killian's doing. Curly says that Killian's <laughs> lost his mind. <laughs> I love Curly so much. Yes. Again, I know we already sang his praises last sure, week. Sure. But just him being a full character and a member of this enterprise continues. And it's um, just awesome. Yeah. Killian says that it's hard work, but he's decided that he doesn't want to get used to it. So he tells Curly to bring six cans of petrol and put them in the back of the car. Charlie calls after him as he leaves. If you ever want a job, I'll get you your own shovel. Charming as always, Charlie. He's annoying. (laughs) He is not a cheerful Charlie. He is not a cheerful Charlie. (laughs) He would not get the role. No. We cut to Grace putting on earrings as PJ Harvey's To Bring You My Love plays. Didn't that play before? I believe it did. Did that play when they banged? Maybe, In season yeah, one. that could be right. I think it might have. Yeah. Killian walks up to a house. Grace is putting on makeup and perfume, and her husband comes in and says, Grace looks too gorgeous for some half-blind auntie. Remember, he's got his American <laughs> accent to keep them rich, Grace. <laughs> yeah, and gullible. Yes. I find it hard to believe that Grace is really fooling him this easily, but... Well, look, she's like, I was a terrible spy before. I can be a terrible adulteress now. <laughs> Nobody will notice. <laughs> She says that her auntie is her harshest critic and she's half deaf, not half blind. And the way she says it is like she had like forgotten the lie that she told him. (laughs) Right. He wants to know when she'll be back. And she says before midnight. He says, oh, he'll be awake. Wink, wink. (laughs) Nudge, nudge. (laughs) Grace's car drops her at Killian's place and he shows her into his parlor and offers her a seat. He sits and pulls out a cigarette. She asks if she doesn't get a drink. He awesomely negs her by telling her to help herself and to get him a whiskey. Yeah. I mean, she was his barmaid. Mm-hmm. She says some things have changed. She saw vans with his name on them at the docks. Grace says she wasn't so sure about coming, but Killian tells her that he lit a fire in the bedroom upstairs. He'd planned that they'd sit there together and reminisce, and then they'd go upstairs and sleep together after a couple of whiskeys. Yeah. But on his way to answer the door, he changed his mind. And Grace gets super pissed. Yeah. Because she thought she was going to get fucked. (laughs) And he tells her that she can go if, you know, the idea of not fucking Killian does not appeal. (laughs) She then drinks her whiskey super fast and gathers her things, and Killian wonders why she's still there. He asks if she's still in love with him, because he says that he was in love with her, but he's not anymore, and he wonders if she's armed. She says she doesn't need to carry a gun anymore, like, as if that's going to impress him. Right. Like, that's the thing, is, like, if she hadn't fucked him over so spectacular, I mean, Mm -hmm. he was kind of considering it, you know? But, like, her being a spy only made her more attractive to him. Yeah, absolutely. As far as Killian's concerned, everybody needs to carry a gun. Some people just don't know it. But he, yeah, but he just, like, kept saying, oh, I'm going to be legal. I'm going to be respectable. Even though that doesn't really make him happy. Yeah, yeah. Killian goes and sits next to Grace and says he hates reunions, uh, but now they know everything they need to know. Let's have another drink. This is amazing. (laughs) This is not doing it justice. Right, right, right. Grace wants to know if he uh, didn't really light the fire. Mm -hmm. Killian says that his real plan is to take Grace out because he wants to impress her. He asks if she likes Charlie Chaplin. She says, yes, I like Charlie Chaplin because everybody did. (laughs) Right. He was the Marilyn Monroe of the interwar years. Yeah. But Killian says that he bets that she's never heard Charlie Chaplin speak. Ho, ho. Dot, dot, dot. Right. So we cut to Grace and Killian walking down a fancy corridor. Grace says she's confused. They're going to see Charlie Chaplin, but they're not at a picture house. How could this be? What? (laughs) 
Killian points out Charlie Chaplin. Uh, she, he says that he doesn't know Chaplin, but he knows his bodyguard, Wag McDonald. He says that both Chaplin and Wag are Romani gypsies. We should have fact-checked that. I fact-checked it. it. Wikipedia doesn't seem to agree. Uh, but, you know, Killian says that's just because he went to Great Lanes to cover it up. And his origins are a little bit obscure. Like, it's not like it's super clear uh-huh. what he was born well, into. Well, you know, dramatic license. And yeah, I guess yeah. it's his scene, which is a lot of fun. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so Killian takes Grace up to meet Wagon Chaplin, saying, See, we all have our secrets, Grace. Boo! <laughs> a phone rings, and Sam Neill picks up. Killian has called to gloat that he's going to bang Grace in Ada's house that night, and Sam Neill just says, liar! Yeah. And it's amazing. Yeah. Like, not only do we all want to crack at the one who got away, <laughs> we also want to double crack at, like, our rival for the one who got away. Yeah. Especially if the one who got away also got away from the... This is basically the, you like apples? <laughs> I got a number. How do you like them apples? Yeah. Uh, except that that Harvard guy had also, like, imprisoned Matt Damon's brother. Well, uh, oh, okay, sorry. I was like, did he? <laughs> it's, it's been I was like, I need to rewatch Goodwill Hunting. Oh, yeah. A lot more gunplay than you remember. I was going to say, it sounds much more like Goodwill Hunting 2 from uh, Jay and Silent Bob Strike Back. Right. <laughs> So we cut to Killian and Grace making out. Ow, ow! <laughs> Except boo. Well, right. You have the attractive bitch. Grace wants to know if Killian has someone, uh, but then she says that it's too late for them. Because he doesn't answer. Right. Uh, she says if he had just come with her to New York, but he says it couldn't have worked. Grace asks again if he has someone. He says that he has a racehorse who's going to win the Derby. Which, you know, great. But also, like... I want to punch Grace in the face because Grace is trying to like somehow justify this by like, well, if I'm going to cheat on my husband, you need to be cheating on someone as well. (laughs) Yeah. Like, which is not how cheating works, Grace. You take what you have to work with and you cheat. (laughs) Uh, So PJ Harvey's Catherine plays as they bang on Ada's couch. Yeah, so I was wondering where they were because I didn't remember Killian having a residence in London. So that's gross. (laughs) Yes. Uh, intercut with them getting dressed again, and then Killian says that he'll drive her back, and he wants to know when she sails, but she's not sure. Uh, she tells Killian it wasn't right, which, sh- you know, shut up. This is not the time to say that. Well, we'll get, to, you know, we'll lay into her at the end of this scene. <laughs> yeah. Uh, apparently there is a doctor in Harley Street who is trying to help them get pregnant. Killian pinches the bridge of his nose and wants, uh, grabs a cigarette and wants to know why she came that night. Grace says the doctor thinks it's surely she who is at fault. Um, so does this end with her having Killian's baby? Is that what this is going on here? You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, because I mean, it's really this... you know, she certainly is protesting that that's why she can't. Look, he's yeah. interpreting it that way. Right. He's right. like, oh, did you just come here to get knocked up? Mm-hmm. Anyway, Killian says that he's sorry that, you know, her uterus is broken or whatever <laughs> and asked to see her again. Uh, he says that Grace is still working undercover, at which Grace slaps him and says she's never lied to her husband once. Except for before. Right. We Except saw you do it. literally just now. Yeah. That's definitely, unless Killian is also your half-deaf auntie. That would be a twist. That would be a surprise twist, yes. Uh, anyway, she says she's never lied to her husband, so Killian says, so tell him the truth. I, 
hate this so much. I hate this trope. I know it's a trope because it's real. Yeah. But it's like, oh, I've never lied to my husband before. That doesn't absolve you from lying to him now. Right. Yeah. Like, you know, I mean, obviously you and I are in agreement being married to each other. Yeah. That honesty is like the number one important thing in a marriage. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. you, you know, and not because it gives you points. Mm-hmm. You know, obviously our marriage does not operate on a points system. You're right. But it's like, if you're married to a person, you don't get to be like, oh, well, I never lied to him before, so I can lie to him now. Like, that's fine. Right. Like, right. that yeah, flies, that's not, yeah. That flies in the face of any honesty that you were giving him before. Yeah. 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 Anyway, it's ridiculous. Yeah. yeah. So Grace still sucks. The only value of all this was Sam uh, was getting in, Killian getting to call Sam Neil. Agreed. And ac- and that actually their scene, the initial scene with them together was really cool. Oh yeah, totally. <laughs> like, Look, listen, it's still a great show. Yeah, yes. we just hate Grace. Right, that's all. Arthur is led in chains down a jail corridor. That's G A O L. Yes. Out in the courtyard, a policeman pats Mumper down and confiscates his razor blade filled hat. And <laughs> Michael was like, I wasn't going to use it. It's just my trademark. Come on. Mumper asks how Arthur's doing. He says, terrible. He's surrounded by Sabini's men and there's rats everywhere. Mumper says, at least Arthur's going to get what he always wanted. <laughs> he tried to hang himself twice. And now the king's going to do it for him, <laughs> which is maybe the best joke of the series. <laughs> Arthur says, uh, Arthur starts getting pensive. He says he's wasted his life. He's just walking circles around Mumper. Yeah. He's saying he used to be good at drawing horses. <laughs> what? Mumper says, cheer up. Arthur's not going to hang because Killian says he's not going to. Arthur doesn't believe it because Killian's obviously lost control. But Mumper assures Arthur that Killian does have a plan. Uh, but Arthur snarks him like, oh, well, you don't know what it is, do you? And Mumper's like, yeah, we all know what we have to do. So calm the fuck down. Yeah. We see Johnny Dogs pulling up in front of the assassin target, the the assassinee, I suppose, mm-hmm. uh, that house. And uh, when that cop comes up to talk to him, Johnny Dogs keeps him talking for a bit, uh, pretending to be Irish. Yeah. Which this also in the Michael Crichton book, The Great Train Robbery, happened on a couple of occasions when somebody was trying to provide a diversion. They pretended to be Irish on the assumption that the cops would think, oh, just another stupid Irish person. Or I'm also Irish. Uh, possibly. Well, I guess but that's I, more of an that's American, an American thing. thing. Yeah, that wouldn't have been the case there. Never mind. Yeah. Uh, just, and also they would assume that they were, you know, simple because they were Irish and not malicious. Well, that explains why I was so bad at calculus. (laughs) (laughs) That must be it. So anyway, yeah, uh, while the cop is distracted, uh, Mumper plants, uh, we, we see him dropping something through the mail slot of the house, and then as he walks away, the house explodes. It's great. Yeah, and definitely, clearly Killian wasn't distracting him. Remember, John, when the bomb goes off, Keep walking all cool and casual like. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to ver- send you an episode of Breaking Bad. <laughs> Cut to Killian smoking and driving as PJ Harvey's Come On Billy plays. You know that old song. Come on, Billy Tarula. Come on, Billy Tarula. Anyway. Yeah. Sorry, PJ. Uh, Billy got shot at the beginning of this episode. So. <laughs> He's at Attractive Bitch's place again, and she shows him the goldfish they've installed in the water trough. She wants to know if it really stops the horses from getting worms, and he says it really does. 
She's sorry he had to drive through the night and says he can go in to sleep. He tells her that they have to stop fucking because there's someone else. Uh. Like, okay, you know what? You know when the time to tell attractive bitch that you can't fuck anymore is? Mm -hmm. When you marry Grace. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, there's not someone else because the person you're referring to is it's, fucking married. Yeah, she's married to a different person. Yeah, of a different nationality. She lives in New York. Yeah. Like, it's yeah. insane. Anyway, uh, she gets super pissed and right. it's great. I yeah. mean, she's like, uh, hey. Yeah. Fuck you, dude. Yeah. Uh, she was going to tell Killian how much the horse has improved and then keeps calling him sir. Yeah. Because now this is a business relationship. Right. She asks if he's off to Birmingham immediately, but then he asks what she'd say if he stayed after what she he just said. Then she goes into this whole thing where she says that aristocrats are much more ruthless than criminals, and it's all very all lives matter. Yeah. Like, we don't it's need like, your pity party about how everybody's pointing and laughing at you. Like, they were right. pointing and laughing at you before. Yeah. Did any, did any of your rich, bitchy friends stab you in the face with a bottle? Or a razor. Right. They did not. No. That's ruthless. Yeah. Life is pain, Highness, <laughs> and you've barely experienced any of it. Yeah. Uh, Killian sort of acts like he's leaving and then he comes back to look at the goldfish and says they look happy. AB wants to know who the other woman is and Killian says it's someone who's sailing away. AB says to let her sail away. Here, here. He's told an attractive bitch about Grace like a gentleman. Now kindly act like a gangster again, which is great. Yeah. She doesn't care if he feels sorry for her. She says that his horse will come in fifth or sixth, but she will win him. Boom! Team AB. Yeah. Even with her weak sauce argument about, you know, right. upper class people being like, I say. Yeah. That one I, and that one I didn't even blame her for. That I just blamed the writers for that line yeah. somehow. But yeah, I'm like, yeah, I want you to win him. Yeah. Like, mm-hmm. I want you and Tom Hardy in this show for a good long time. <laughs> yeah. I want Annabelle Wallace out. Yeah. I'm not interested in her. Nope. She can take her blonde ass back to Poughkeepsie. She sure can. Lizzie shows Sam Neill into Killian's proper office. Uh, he asks what Lizzie does exactly, and she says, I'm exactly a secretary to Mr. Shelby. Also Team Lizzie. Yes. Like, I don't want her to wind up with Killian because I think she can do better, mm-hmm. but I really like her a lot. Yeah. Not that winding up with Killian is the only happy ending for anyone on this show. Right, right. She asks Sam Neill if he wants tea. He refuses. Uh, he then thumps his way over to Killian's desk with his death cane. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, he puts his hat on it. He tries a few of the drawers, which are all locked. Killian catches him at it and confirms that he keeps everything of value locked up. He invites Sam Neill to take a seat. Sam Neill asks after Paul and says to give her his regards. So Killian obviously doesn't know that all that happened. Right. Sam Neill wants to make clear what a, you know, gaping asshole he is. He watches Killian light a cigarette and then begins speechifying about how Killian enjoys playing with you fire. You enjoy playing with fire, Mr. Shelby. Yeah. And he planted a bomb and failed Marshall Russell's house. <laughs> so that means that Field Marshal Russell has to live somewhere else, and thus Sam Neill's plan for Killian to kill him in his bed won't work, uh, which they yell at each other for a while about that. And Killian says that uh, the Field Marshal will come to him. And that he will carry out his mission, but he will do it in a place where it will be impossible for Sam Neill's men to kill him afterward, because he knows that that was how Sam Neill planned for this to go down. 
He tells Sam Neill that he has be- recently become a racehorse owner, and perhaps he can guess which horse is his. Sam Neill looks at the picture that... Okay, and here's the thing. It says it's owned by Mr. Thomas Shelby. Yeah, by T. Shelby. Yeah, ridiculous. Anyway, but you know, it's old Grace's Secret, which I feel bad for that horse. I think it should have a better name, you know? Like, uh, you know, Dappled Dawn. <laughs> sure. I don't know. Shadow Facts. Yeah! <laughs> So Sam Neill asks where and when, and Killian says, Epsom, Derby Day. Boom! Clang! Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm so excited about episode six. I know, me too. I can't even, I can't even tell you. It's Derby Day, everybody. Yeah, it's really exciting. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that's, you know, the penultimate episode. Yeah. Uh, we've got a lot of balls in the air. We Arthur's, do. Arthur's in prison. The field marshal remains unkilled. Yeah. Uh, London, they had it, and now it's gone. Mm-hmm. H&M's uh, all butthurt. Yeah. Um, Grace is back. Yeah. Ugh. Right. Gross. Uh, attractive bitch. Don't care about Grace. True. Killian's got to kill the field marshal. Right. Field marshal also still alive. Himself. Yeah. Uh, will, you know, shadow facts win. <laughs> That's right. There's a lot going on. There really is. You know, will Esme, uh, slowly take over the Shelby's <laughs> enterprise? I don't think she would though. Nah. It's too much business. Yeah. She doesn't mind taking bets from the punters. Like all that <laughs> other crap. Right. Nah. Yeah. Anyway, uh, yeah. So let's uh, let's do a little bit of email, shall we? Yeah. All right. So some of these are addressed to cousins because they refer to things we cover in up here's downstairs. Right. Let's just all. You know what? We don't believe in labels. <laughs> That's right. This comes from cousin Heidi. Dear cousins Kelly and Tom, I discovered your podcast in the dead of last winter while working early cold mornings in Vermont. Tom's dulcet tones and Kelly's psychotic laughter (laughs) warmed me through many long drives through the Green Mountains. I am now dedicated to watching whatever you cover, even while I summer here in Brooklyn and let you entertain me while I languish in my urban village, fixing boxes of blue apron and sitting in outrageous traffic. I write today because as a sometimes opera impresario myself, I find it most pressing that I relay to you some brief notes regarding music, the voice, and the Italian language. Topics which often have come up in your shows, but you seem to inexplicably dismiss as irrelevant or opaque, and thus I humbly offer the following. Number one, the composer Giacomo Puccini was a legend at the dawn of the 1900s and his operas were modern and very popular all over the world. It is his music that Dame Melba sings at Downton. Sadly, the role was played by a beautiful soprano, Dame Kiri Takanawa, who was a wee bit past her prime at filming time. Perhaps if she had sung better, Anna would not have complained about a headache and discovered herself vulnerable to Mr. Green's horrendous attack. Number two. Dame Melba sang an aria, O mio babino caro, from the opera Johnny Skicky. Babino means daddy, and it's all about a daughter asking her father for freedom, which is fitting since Lord Grantham has so many daughters to manage. <laughs> Number three, Puccini also wrote the piece from La Boheme, which Henri Leclerc uses to seduce Agnes and Mr. Selfridge. He says the piece is about students, but he is wrong. The opera is about a poet and Mimi, a girl he falls in love with, a girl who has few options in life and is trying to get out of menial labor. Yeah, Henri was clearly thinking about rent. He was. <laughs> <laughs> they weren't students either. Well, I guess, yeah, I wouldn't know. He was thinking of Spring Awakening. (laughs) Agnes does far better than Mimi, who dies of TB after being forced into life as a courtesan. Number four. In Italian, the letter I after G softens the sound. So yes, Victor Colliano's uncle Joe is pronounced just like Joe. Puccini's first name, Giacomo, follows the same rule. So Giacomo's nickname would sound like the French name Jacques or Jacques. And the name Gianni would have a nickname that sounds like John. Number five, Colliano is probably an anglicized version of the Italian name 
Corleano. The GL sounds like a double L. And it just so happens that John Corleano is a Pulitzer Prize winning living Italian America opera composer. So there's that. Yeah. Number six, and perhaps the most... I wonder if that name is related to Corleone. It could be. I wonder. Number six, and perhaps the most startling subtext, the opera Sam Neill goes to see in season one of Peaky Blinders as the masterpiece Tosca, also by Puccini. So according to British showrunners, <laughs> there is no other opera composer but Puccini. Uh, while Kelly was correct in I demand more Verdi. <laughs> While Kelly was correct in calling into question the many wrinkles on the singer's faces, it is a very sexy and violent opera and is usually played nowadays by gorgeous performers. However, the great irony is that Sam Neill should have paid attention to the opera better instead of meeting with silly spies in the box because the scene he was watching involved a corrupt police inspector offering to give the woman's captive lover freedom only if he can have her body in the meantime. Wow. He writes her a passport and she promptly stabs him to death. I do hope this foreshadows a scene in series two with Sam Neill and Paul. I haven't seen how that part plays out yet. I hope this gets to you before you cover it. <laughs> the opera also involves the dastardly ruse of the police saying a prisoner on death row will be secretly pardoned last minute only to have him killed anyway, which seems to be a favorite of Officer Campbell. Yeah. So that's a really... Wow. That's really clever, Steve Knight. Yeah. Like, kudos. Yeah. Number seven, I find your imitations of the various Peaky Blinders accents terribly amusing, though I believe Sam Neill deserves more credit than you bestow upon him. In fact, he does what I believe Jeremy Piven fails to do. He has a very authentic cadence to his voice, which was very common to leaders of the day, who often did not have microphones and needed to address crowds in a very declamatory way. Not unlike how The Daily Show makes fun of newscasters' cadences, trying to make things sound more important than they are. As soon as I started watching Mr. Selfridge, Piven's jolly vernacular bothered me so much that I googled recordings of past presidents, and they all have the exact same cadence as Mr. Neal, albeit without the Irish brogue. I think Piven's modernity would not have been so garish to early viewers if he had studied these same recordings. Number eight, Grace does in fact sing terribly. But it sounds to me that the actress, Annabelle Wallace, is a trained singer who was told by the artistic team to sound untrained, and hence her undersupported and vague sound. Hmm. Looking at these notes in whole, it seems that some of these show creators underestimate how much viewers abhor mediocre singing and why we should call for higher quality. One of the reasons why I love period dramas is how wonderful to imagine a time of silence. No amplified sound and little machinery. Acoustic music, the feats of the human voice, and the cadence of foreign tongues were one of the few means of heart-filling sound people had, and they took it seriously. These small observations notwithstanding, I remain your beloved cousin and patron, Duchess Beverly, a.k.a. Heidi Lauren, writing from Sunny Lorimer Street, Greenpoint, Brooklyn, Kings County on the Isle of Long in the Great Empire State. <laughs> P.S. I, too, enjoy the anachronistic music in Peaky as well as Sofia Coppola's work. The more you love music, the more music you love. P.P.S. By order of the Peaky <laughs> Blinders! So thank you. That was all really fascinating stuff. Yeah, that and, was I mean, great. We don't know a ton about opera or no. classical music, hence our general dismissal. Yeah. Well, you all I, know how rigorous our research methods are. <laughs> right. No, I try to know as much as possible to be able to answer a few questions on Jeopardy if I'm ever on it, but it's definitely one of my weaker <laughs> subjects. Uh, all right. We'll do one more. Okay. And then we can uh, let it all go. <laughs> uh, so this comes from Ed, who says, hey, guys. Love the podcasts, and especially your Peaky Blinders series. You asked in the last podcast whether Fenian was still a slur in the UK, and being from the UK, I thought I could share my knowledge. 
While it's rather complex, here are the main points. In most of Britain and the Republic of Ireland, the word Fenian does not carry particular weight and definitely does not represent political Irish republicanism. In England and Scotland, it has become a religious derogatory term for Irish Catholic immigrants in the cities of Liverpool and Glasgow, where the main football teams have become aligned with the different religious groups. Mm. So it is used as a religious-based slur in that football rivalry situation. In Northern Ireland, because of the Troubles, we would probably carry more weight as real violence based along these lines has been shed very recently. So in Northern Ireland, it would most definitely be seen as a slur. In the context of the show Peaky Blinders in Beeham or London, now it would have very little meaning to people, and so most of the UK would not now really be considered a slur. So in general, in Britain and Ireland, it does not carry the weight of a usual slur, but in specific regions, it would be seen as very offensive. Love the podcast. All the best. Ed. All right. All right. So we can just say Fenian. Yeah. Just not in Northern Ireland. Right. If you go to Belfast, you know, keep it blue. Or if we're at uh, a match uh, and, and the old firm, I think it's called a rivalry between Celtic and Rangers in Glasgow. Okay. Fair enough. Yeah. Which I would not want to be at anyway. Yeah. Because that, that seems a bit much. Yeah. For us. Yeah. All right. Well, we'll be back next week with the finale. Uh, of Peaky Blinders, which we're very excited about. Indeed. And some just basic uh, housekeeping notes. So we'll be taking a bit of time off. Right. uh, And we apologize for the the break, but we need one. Yeah. Uh, We're going to be traveling quite a bit, and it's Mm -hmm. very difficult for us to podcast either on the road or when we're in different places. Yeah, yeah. Uh, So we'll be back at the very beginning of October uh, with basically regular hiatus programming. We're going to do every other week. Uh, Mm -hmm. as we've done in the past. We're not totally sure what we're doing yet, so we'll post that as soon as we do know. Mm -hmm. Uh, If you do have additional suggestions, we've gotten a couple great ones so far. Uh, But if you have other suggestions, please tweet them or email or send them to our Facebook message box. Mm -hmm. And uh, so we'll do that through the end of the year. And then when Downton comes back on PBS, we'll do full-length recaps. Right Now, we will be doing, again, the instant takes. Yes, for Downton Abbey when the UK broadcast begins, which we think is September 20th. Right. We thought that went well last year. So Yeah, so we're going to do that again. So it'll be every other week, full-length episodes about various movies and television, and then instant takes weekly right. until whenever, Downton is over. Whenever that happens, yeah. Um, and we have a really fun surprise for you guys around the holidays. We do, yes. So definitely be uh, aware <laughs> yeah. that that's going to be happening. Get ready. Uh, yeah, so we're really excited. Um, uh-huh. It's going to be really great. Other things we're doing, we're working on getting a Patreon up and yeah, running. Yeah. Uh, that's kind of slow going for us, but we want to try and have that in place uh, for you guys. Several people have emailed us and said that you want to give us money. And we're we, like, yeah, we, yeah should, we should make that happen. Money is great. We like money. Uh, you know, somebody's got to pay for our printer cartridges. <laughs> <laughs> Um, yeah, so I think that's pretty much everything. Yeah. Uh, we're excited to be getting back into Downton. We definitely are. Uh, we're, there's a little a little solitary tear coming. I know. It's crazy. And it's so the last one. we're all going to have to cling to each other, yeah. cousins. Yeah, we slash are. Slash customers, slash listeners. <laughs> Again, we're not into labels. Right. Uh, yeah, so we'll be back next week mm-hmm. with an all-new episode. By order of the Peaky Blinders!